0: Good evening, everybody. Um, wonderful to, to have you all with us. I'm Father Charlie Gordon, and with Dr. Karen Eifler here in the first row, um, uh, we direct the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture, uh, who are sponsoring uh, this, this event this evening. And we are uh, delighted to have uh, with us right here in the first row, very distinguished uh, first row, and uh, right right here on the aisle, in fact, we have uh, Father Mark Porman, the President of the University of Portland, who is with us this evening. And, and just a few seats down is uh, is Dr. Tom Green, who is the provost, the leading academic officer of the university. So it's wonderful to have him with us as well. Well, well, usually uh, at this point in the festivities, you get a kind of coming attractions in which we we tell you about all the wonderful Garaventa Center events that are coming up. But as it happens. Uh, this is the very last event of the uh, academic year for the Garaventa Center, so I can only. <laughs> Someone's applauding up here. But there, I'm, I'm told next year's calendars are available. Uh, but uh, I really just want to take this opportunity to to thank you all for your your support of the Garaventa Center and all of the. It's wonderful to see so many familiar faces of folks who've supported us uh, throughout the year and, and, and throughout the years. And uh, You have our, our promise that um, we have wonderful, wonderful things in store for you in the next academic year. Do we have our PDUs sheet out there? I have to mention that as well. Uh, PDUs are professional development units and they're necessary to K-12 through teachers. And uh, through a special arrangement with the School of Education here at the University of Portland, we at the Garaventa Center have the capacity to issue free PDUs for uh, any, any Garaventa Center event that you might attend, including this one. So if you're a, a K through K-12 teacher of uh, any sort at all, uh, uh, please uh, just sign up for those and we'll get them off to you uh, tomorrow morning but the uh, the reason that this enormous crowd is gathered here uh, this evening is uh, to celebrate Father Tom Hosinski uh, as he he offers his last lecture to the University of Portland uh, community. Uh, Father Tom is a Holy Cross priest which uh, would help to account for the fact that this this room is just just salted with Holy Cross priests and brothers. I mean, you, you, a lot of them are out of uniform, but the person sitting the person sitting next to you may, may very well be a Holy Cross. Priest. Just checking to see, and uh, and also. Uh, Father Tom is a uh, distinguished uh, systematic theologian, so the theology faculty, too, is, is very well represented tonight, and we're delighted for that. Father Tom uh, did his doctoral studies at the University of Chicago under the great systematic theologian Langdon Gilkey, and he came directly from the University of Chicago to the University of Portland, where he began to teach in 1978 um, 38 years ago and he uh, actually wrote his doctoral dissertation while teaching at the university In those days it was four courses each semester and uh, he was assigned um, world religions courses and he didn't know anything about world religions (laughs) except for one So he spent a good deal of his time trying to keep a chapter or so ahead of the students <laughs> uh, while spending you know several hours a night writing his, uh, his doctoral dissertation, which in perhaps typical University of Chicago style eventually uh, amounted to something like 800 pages, uh, comparing the approaches to science of Alfred uh, North uh, Whitehead and Bernard Lonergan. Um, And uh, so 38 years um, of of his life and his career and his priesthood have been invested in this community, uh, for which I know that we and and countless others uh, that he knew and ministered to and taught through the decades are uh, immensely uh, grateful You know, one of the things that a really good academic does is stake out a territory so that, in the sense that if you, anywhere in the world you might be, are interested in a particular topic, you pick up the phone or go to the library and and talk to that person. Um, The first example from the University of Portland that I think of in this regard is is Father Dick Rutherford, who uh, one of our most distinguished uh, emeritus professors, and uh, anyone anywhere in the world who wants to know about the uh, the, the Catholic uh, funeral rites, he is literally the first person in the world that, that you would that you would that you would consult on that subject. Um and and Father Tom too has uh his patch that he's established and in, in in which um he's very highly regarded. Now you heard a couple of the names already, Alfred North, Whitehead and and uh Bernard Lonergan. And I guess loosely speaking, we might say that uh Father Tom's work is associated with what's, what's often called process theology, which is a forward-looking kind of theology that looks forward to the final consummation of what is revealed in Jesus Christ. Um, In Father Tom's case, I would say the final consummation and accomplishment of God's saving will for humanity and for all of creation as revealed in Jesus Christ. Um, and the creation part of that is important too because his profound reverence for all of creation and all of God's creatures is a very important aspect of his of his thought, of his life. Tonight's uh, talk is... entitled um, The Sacredness of the Ordinary, which is a very suggestive title. But it may be worth mentioning that that Tom's life is an example of uh, somebody who practices the sacredness of the ordinary in the sense that when you know Tom, ordinary personal encounters have a sense of the sacred about them. He has a compassion and a tenderness in his ordinary encounters with his students and with his friends and with all the people God sends his way that um, that is uh, life-giving uh, to so many of us. And he's been particularly um, close in... Times of grief or loss or sorrow for for a great many people who are here and a great many people who are members of this community. But I imagine that he has in mind uh, a slightly different uh, slant on the on this on this on the sacredness of the ordinary. But uh, let's find out. So let's let's welcome Father Thomas.
1: Thank you, Charlie, for that very generous introduction. Uh, I also want to thank Dr. Karen Neifler, along with Father Charlie, for the invitation to speak tonight. I am very grateful for this honor, and thanks to all of you for coming tonight. This is really remarkable. There's a sense in which the theme of the sacredness of the ordinary has been with me for much of my life. I will tell you a story that I myself find hard to believe. One evening when I was five years old, my mother asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I told her that I wanted to be a priest, and she said, Tommy, that's wonderful, but why do you want to be a priest? And I shocked her by saying that I wanted to be a priest because I wanted to hold God in my hands, the sacred in the ordinary. I was thinking, of course, of the consecrated host, which at the time of my childhood could be held only by a priest. It would be many years before I came to understand that we all hold God in our hands, and that the sacred dwells in the ordinary at every instant. We usually make a very strong distinction between the sacred and the ordinary. The notion of the sacred that I have in mind is captured well in one of Webster's definitions of the word, and I quote, sacred holy, hallowed by association with the divine or the consecrated, hence entitled to reverence and respect. We humans create sacred places, churches, synagogues, mosques, temples. Temple Mount in Jerusalem, for example, is sacred to both Jews and Muslims, and people of all religions throughout the world have built shrines of various sorts. We create sacred times, Ramadan, Passover, the Day of Atonement, Lent, Holy Week, Easter, and so on. We create sacred rituals, the Mass, Holy Week rituals, such as the washing of the feet on Holy Thursday, the veneration of the cross on Good Friday, pilgrimage to Mecca in Islam with all of its rituals. Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, Shinto, they all have their rituals. And indigenous people throughout the world worship and celebrate in rituals, such as the very beautiful Shalako rituals amongst the Ashiwi people, commonly known as the Zuni Indians of New Mexico, and various nine-day healing ceremonies conducted by Navajo Hatali, or singers. Yet the older I get, the more I am convinced that we humans make this distinction between the sacred and the ordinary only because we take our ordinary daily lives for granted. And we have to create these sacred places and times and rituals to remind ourselves that our lives have to do with the sacred, to remind ourselves of how sacred ordinary life really is. I learned the sacredness of the ordinary gradually through life experiences. Although I had always felt the presence of the divine in the beauty of nature and in the love of my mother and some family members and friends, I learned the sacredness of life in the ordinary world most strongly when I went through chemotherapy for cancer and again when I cared for my ordination classmate, Father Jeff Savosin, as he died. During my chemotherapy, simply watching the birds and the squirrels in my garden, enjoying the beauty of flowers and walking outdoors, filled me with a deep sense of how beautiful and sacred life in the world are. The concern of my community and friends, even the gentle touch of my cat's paws, communicated to me the presence and love of God. And in the suffering and death of my ordination classmate, I sensed very deeply the presence of God and the sacredness even of the dying process and grieving. The theology I had been studying all of my adult life illuminated and validated these feelings. This idea of the sacredness of the ordinary can be traced back to Jesus himself, I believe. I will give you only one example from his teaching, the parable of the yeast or the leaven. It's a very brief parable that reads this way in the version in Luke's Gospel. Quote, to what should I compare the kingdom of God? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until it, all of it was leavened. This parable would have shocked Jesus' hearers for several reasons, including that Jesus compared the kingdom of God to the action of a woman, a challenge to a very patriarchal culture. But the shock that I am interested in this evening is this. Leavened bread was the ordinary everyday bread, not the sacred bread of Judaism. Matzah, the sacred bread, was and is unleavened. In fact, because of how women in Jesus' time obtained the yeast to make leavened bread, it was the Jewish regulation that during sacred times, specifically the observance of Passover, all yeast or leaven had to be removed from the house. How did women obtain yeast? They couldn't run down to their local Safeway or Fred Meyers and buy a cube of Fleischmann's yeast. They got yeast by taking a piece of leavened bread, putting it in a bowl, covering it with a damp cloth, and putting it in a dark corner of the kitchen. The yeast would then grow on the bread, and they could harvest it as they needed it. This whole process seemed, well, to use the Jewish term, unclean, not fit for sacred times and observances. Yet Jesus compares the kingdom of God with the sacred, which is really a euphemism for the presence and action of God, to this, to the action of yeast in ordinary daily bread. The Christian tradition subsequent to Jesus teaches us of the sacredness of the ordinary in many different ways. There is, for example, the implication of the divine attribute of omnipresence. God is everywhere. Now, Metaphysically, that attribute is simply trying to say that one cannot confine the infinite God to any finite location. But surely, to say that God is present everywhere also implies that the ordinary world is God's dwelling place. And by association, at least, this ought to teach us that the ordinary world and our ordinary daily lives are sacred because God dwells in them. There is also the much neglected doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Christian tradition teaches us that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, is poured out on the world so that the Spirit is working within every person, active within the ordinary world, unseen, felt only in extraordinary moments of religious awareness. The work of the Spirit is traditionally called sanctification, the making holy of all people and all the world itself. The sacred, the divine in the ordinary, confers sacredness upon the ordinary. In addition, many of the great theologians of the Christian tradition have understood the doctrine of creation to imply that the creatures of the world and the world itself exist by participating in the divine being or the divine life. This is a profoundly important idea. To exist is to participate in the divine life. If we reflect on this and grasp what it means, we cannot help but see the sacredness of what we take to be ordinary. I do not have the time this evening to enter into all the details of these various theologies of creation and existence, but I can give quick indications of how some great theologians tried to express this insight. The Augustinian tradition is well represented by Anselm of Canterbury, the 11th century theologian who formulated an analysis one can trace back to Augustine himself. Anselm argued that when we say someone is good or wise or holy, we are implying that to one degree or another, that person participates in that good quality or virtue. But when we say that God is good or wise or holy, Anselm argued, we are not describing how God participates in that quality or virtue. Instead, we are actually stating what the divine nature is. Since God does not owe God's existence or being to anything other than God, and since whatever God is, God must be through God's self and not through another, and since God is perfect, then God's very nature is the infinite fullness of all perfections, virtues, or good qualities. God's nature is infinite goodness. God's nature is infinite wisdom, God's nature is infinite holiness, and so on. Without the prior existence of this infinite fullness of that perfection, there could be no lesser manifestation of it, because all limited or finite examples of that quality occur by participation to one degree or another in that quality. Now, that analysis may seem very abstract and abstruse to us today, But what it is implying is extremely beautiful. It is saying that all finite examples of any good quality, any virtue, exist by participating in the divine nature itself. God's infinite and perfect being enables all finite manifestations of virtue or goodness to be. Or to put it another way, God's infinite beauty and goodness gives life to all beauty and goodness in the world. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century also taught that finite creatures of the universe exist by participating in God's unrestricted act of being. All creatures subsist, exist under, or within, or through, or by participation rather, in the being of God. He also argued in another context that secondary causes, and that means the causal agencies within the universe, have true causal power and thus participate to a limited degree in the infinite creative power of God. In short, the creativity that we observe in the ordinary processes of the universe participate to a limited degree in the infinite creativity that is the divine life itself. Nicholas of Cusa, one of my favorite theologians, in, who lived in the 15th century, focused on the infinity of God and developed a very beautiful theology of God in the world. He says, quote, God is the enfolding of all things in that all things are in God, and God is the unfolding of all things in that God is in all things. So God includes all things, God unfolds all things in God's self, and God is present in all things. All things unfold from God. This is not pantheism, as many people accused him of preaching, because the universe of finite beings can in no way exhaust or be identical with the infinite being that is God. But it is a doctrine that's later going to be called panentheism, the position that all things are in God, and God is in all things. Once again, in Nicholas of Cusa, the ordinary is understood as existing or participating in the infinite being of God. And by implication, if all things unfold from God, and God is present in them, and if God enfolds all things, and all things are in God, then clearly all things are sacred both by their origin and their end in the divine. The great Protestant theologian of the late 18th and early 19th centuries, Friedrich Schleiermacher, also interpreted the doctrine of creation to imply this participation of the creature in the infinite being of God. In the following quotation that I'm about to read, he is speaking of religious feeling or affection, but what he says has profound implications for understanding God in the world. Quote, The contemplation of the pious is the immediate consciousness of the universal existence of all finite things in and through the infinite, and of all temporal things in and through the eternal. Religion is to seek this and find it in all that lives and moves, in all growth and change, in all doing and suffering. It is a life in the infinite nature of the whole, in the one and in the all, in God, having and possessing all things in God, and God in all. It is a revelation of the infinite in the finite, God being seen in it, and it in God. So according to Schleiermacher, to have religious feeling is to be aware of the existence of all things in and through the infinite, to feel and thus know the presence of all things in God, and God in all. In short, religious feeling is to sense the sacredness of the ordinary Despite any and all appearances to the contrary. Interestingly, the notion of the universe or that the universe exists by participating in God's own life can also arise from comparing contemporary cosmological theories of the origin of the universe with the classical arguments for the existence of God. If you'll indulge me, I'll try to explain why I believe that to be true. Contemporary scientific cosmology has two main ways of thinking about the origin of the universe. In the standard model, the universe begins in a Big Bang from, that's the term they use, the technical term, from a cosmic singularity. The singularity is an implication of Einstein's general theory of relativity and results mathematically when an equation requires division by zero. Einstein's equations show that when enough matter energy is compressed in a small enough volume, everything goes infinite. Think of the entire mass energy of the universe compressed into a volume smaller than the diameter of a proton. This is virtually incomprehensible. The singularity is inexplicable by physics, since all the laws of physics break down at that point. Physicists believe that eventually they will be able to explain the history of the universe from 10 to the minus 43rd second after the Big Bang, once they can integrate the gravitational force with the strong and weak nuclear forces and the electromagnetic force. They haven't come close to that yet. But the singularity itself, which contains the entire energy of the universe, is not explainable. They must simply assume it. Needless to say, the fact that physicists can't explain absolutely everything bothers some of them, (laughs) since they operate under the ideal of complete explanation. And so there have been several attempts to develop theories of the origin of the universe as a fluctuation in the quantum vacuum. Now, the quantum vacuum is a well-established fact. It is an energy field all around us, actually that can give rise to virtual particles, as physicists call them, which suddenly pop into existence from the quantum vacuum and disappear back into it without violating the law of conservation of energy. There have been several theories that try to explain the origin of the universe as an incredibly massive particle that came out of the quantum vacuum and got cut off from returning to it. Now none of these theories Um, that have been proposed to this point actually work, but it is possible that eventually one of them may. Yet none of these theories even attempts to explain why or how there is a quantum vacuum. They simply (coughs) presume it. Alexander Vilenkin, a cosmologist who developed one of those theories, has called his theory a naturalistic creation out of nothing. But this is disingenuous, because the quantum vacuum is not nothing. It's an incredible powerful energy field. My point is that none of the current cosmological theories can explain the energy that is the universe. Give physicists and cosmologists the energy, either in the form of the singularity or the quantum vacuum, and they can explain everything. But they can't explain the energy itself. They have to simply assume it. Now, it interests me that the classical argument seeking to prove the existence of God arrive at a very, very similar position. As any philosopher will tell you, none of the classical arguments for God's existence, the cosmological or teleological arguments, are actual proofs in the strict sense of that word. They each have flaws or leaps that render them failures as proofs. But in a sense, they are saying much the same thing as current cosmological theories of the origin of the universe. What I mean is that these classical arguments say, in effect, give us God and the whole world becomes intelligible. Okay? <laughs> Without God, we cannot find answers to, to uh, our questions of origin and cause. The only way to make sense of the universe is to assume that God is its cause. But theologians cannot explain God. Give us God, we'll explain everything. Okay? Now surely these examples show that both in physics and in philosophy and theology, the human intellect runs into its ultimate limits, where we must assume, where we cannot prove or explain. But what interests me in this particular case is that what we run into in these two cases might actually be related. Perhaps in some fundamental sense, God and the energy that constitutes the universe are deeply related. Perhaps it is possible that the energy constituting the universe is properly interpreted theologically as a participation or a sharing in the divine life. Perhaps it is possible, in other words, to think of the energy constituting our universe, which has evolved in so many wonderful and beautiful ways, as the universe living by incarnating a share in the very life of God. Now, as Charlie mentioned earlier, and as some of you know all too well, my own reflections on God have been deeply influenced by the philosophy of Alfred North Whitehead, the great English mathematician and philosopher who moved to the United States in his mid-60s and ended his teaching career at Harvard Universities. In one of his books, Religion in the Making, Whitehead wrote a sentence that has haunted me since I first read it in 1972. He wrote, quote, the world lives by its incarnation of God in itself, unquote. The world lives by its incarnation of God in itself. I don't think you could have a more striking expression of the idea that the ordinary created world exists by participating in and including the sacred. And if something becomes sacred by its association with the divine, then surely we must understand and feel the sacredness of the ordinary. Whitehead's philosophy is not easy to summarize because he had a fondness for abstract thought and he developed a very unusual technical vocabulary. But I will try to summarize for you in more simple language the heart of his philosophy of God's relation to the world. For the sake of simplicity and clarity, I will be speaking of how God relates to human persons. There are many technical questions involved in his analysis of reality that I cannot address tonight, without losing myself in the complexity and abstractions that make him so difficult for most people to understand. I only hope that I can communicate to you some of the beauty of his vision of God and the God-world relationship. Whitehead conceives of God and the world in a dynamic relationship in which they interact in each moment and give something of value to each other. His vision is very similar in some ways to that of Nicholas of Cusa, and I would argue it is quite compatible with Christianity's triune understanding of God as creator, redeemer, and sanctifier. Whitehead affirms God's role as creator and defines it as the eternal and unconditioned grasping evaluation of all possibilities. This role of God is foundational, since God's grasping and valuation of all possibilities organizes them and relates them to each other, and thus forms the basis for order, uh, the order for all possible worlds. Without order, there can be no universe. God's valuation of these possibilities invests them with value relative to God's own aim. This implies that the general order of the universe is an aesthetic order, an order of potential beauty and goodness as a subset of beauty. God's vision of possibility is thus the ultimate actual ground of order and novelty, the ultimate source of the general potentiality of the universe and of all value. And this aspect of God in Whitehead's philosophy is absolutely necessary for there to be any course of events at all. God acts as creator by endowing us in each moment of our lives with all the possibilities open to us in that moment and with freedom, our share in the divine life. God creates us not by determining what we must be or do or say or what events must occur, but rather by providing all that we need to create ourselves in each moment and leaving us free to complete our own creation. God seeks to attract us toward the best possibility as God has evaluated it. But each of us and every other agent in the universe is free to actualize any of the possibilities open to us at that moment. God is present in each single agent in the universe, empowering it and seeking it to attract it to the, to the pardon me, seeking to attract it and the universe as a whole toward actualizing the best possibilities. But all agents in the universe enjoy freedom. They may be influenced by many other things besides God's aim or God's will, if you want to use that expression, and they may actualize even the possibilities that God values least or abhors. The world lives by its incarnation of God in itself, and it is free. It incarnates a finite share of God's own freedom, But there is no guarantee that freedom will always be used for the best or even for the good. This view of creation goes a long way to helping us understand the ambiguity of our experience. If the world lives by the incarnation of God in itself, if the sacred dwells within the ordinary, how can it be that our experience of life is so ambiguous, so filled with suffering and evil and pain, as well as full of beauty and joy? Whitehead's answer is that God creates not by determining outcomes, but by empowering the agents of the universe who in their freedom determine what occurs in the world and are therefore co-creators of the universe. Hence, the evils and sufferings in the world are due to how the agents in the world have exercised their freedom. Traditional theology has long recognized that God gives humans free will and does not determine our actions and decisions. Whitehead, recognizing that we are part of nature, argues that freedom to some degree characterizes all agents in the universe, not just humans. The Anglican scientist and and theologian John Polkinghorne has called this free process an extension of the free will defense of God's goodness in the face of evil. But there is another aspect of God's relation to the universe, Whitehead Holds. Once we decide to actualize one of the possibilities open to us, God must receive into God's own experience what we have made of ourselves in that moment. This is God saving the world as God takes it into God's self. God then transforms, unifies, harmonizes, and heals all the agents of the universe in the unity and harmony of God's own experience. God redeems the world as it passes into God's own life. In a major difference from traditional philosophical theology, Whitehead recognizes that in this aspect of God's relation to the universe, God must be affected by what the agents of the universe have made of themselves, what possibilities they have actualized. Among the many implications of this view, one of the most important is that God suffers, in two distinct ways. First, God suffers with all suffering persons and creaturely agents in the universe. Whitehead states that God's reception of each agent occurs with perfect sympathy. God feels the sufferings of all suffering creatures directly and completely with a perfection of sympathy infinitely greater than we are capable of. But secondly, God also suffers in God's own right because the difference between what has in fact occurred and what might have been can be painful. The beautiful possibilities of God's eternal vision, the kingdom of God, if you will, are not always actualized. We might have loved and cared for each other, but so very often we do not. The power of the cross of Jesus is that it reveals to us how deeply God suffers with and for us, and because of us. And Whitehead's philosophical theology honors and expresses that revelation. There is much more that I could say about Whitehead's philosophical theology, but I will content myself with only one more point. In his cosmological vision, God and the world are related in a dynamic interaction of complementarity, God is the infinite and eternal ground of possibility, order, novelty, and value that is necessary for there to be any course of events at all. That aspect of God makes the universe possible, but we should note it's an eternal vision of merely possible beauty and value. The temporal agents of the universe, finite and in passing, incorporate that creative aspect of God in their own becoming. But in turn... These temporal agents give to God something God cannot otherwise acquire, and that is actualized beauty and value. It is only through the agency of the creatures of this universe that the possibilities of God's eternal vision of beauty are gradually actualized. An analogy may help you grasp what this means and its importance. When we're hungry, we can imagine all sorts of possible foods and relish the idea of them, but until we obtain some actual food, our hunger is never satisfied. Analogously, God hungers for the actualization of the possible beauty and values that God envisions and presents to us, but only through the actualities or only through the actualization of these possibilities can God's hunger be satisfied. This is what we and all the agents of the universe give to God, actualized beauty and value, or the suffering of failing to actualize those beautiful possibilities. The growth of God's kingdom is always at God's initiative, but its actualization depends on how we and all the agents of the universe exercise our freedom. Traditional theology tells us that God loves the world, but that the world adds nothing to God. I have to confess that I could never understand this, and I do not believe it to be true. The beloved always adds something of value to the one who loves. This is another way in which Whitehead's philosophical theology shows the sacredness of the world. Only through the actual world does, God's experience, does God experience the actuality of God's kingdom? What happens in the world is of ultimate value not only to us, but also to God. But the temporal world, and all persons and agents within it, lack permanence. They constantly perish, fading into the past. Some beauties and values endure over time, but eventually all things decay. The problem of death that we humans face is merely our particular experience of a larger cosmic truth. Above a certain level of complexity, all things perish and their accomplishments do not long endure. Moreover, the competing aims of persons, societies, and agents in the universe produce discord, suffering, evil, tragedy, brokenness. Here, God provides what the passing world cannot otherwise achieve. Permanence, harmony, unity, healing, and peace. God receives into God's everlasting becoming every person and every agent of the universe and unifies, harmonizes, and heals them in the unity and harmony of God's own everlasting life. This is God saving the world as God takes it into God's own life. It is God's love for the world and God's compassionate healing of it. And in response to what has been done in the world, God seeks to lead the world beyond the tragedies and evils of the past toward new healing possibilities and new life. God's redemptive love flows back into the world. The Spirit of God sanctifies our torn and broken world. Whitehead once said, quote, The concept of God is the way in which we understand this incredible fact that what cannot be, yet is." The sacred is in the ordinary, and the ordinary is in the sacred. An incredible fact. Yet the Christian religious tradition, as I have briefly tried to indicate, has been teaching us this truth from the beginning. The little boy who wanted to hold God in his hands stands before you tonight at the beginning of his old age, telling you that we all hold God in our hands at every moment. It is because we take our ordinary daily lives for granted that we so often fail to remember how sacred our ordinary daily lives are, how filled with the divine, how precious to God, how important to God in what we say and do to each other, to our fellow creatures, and to our world. We live and dwell in God, and God lives and dwells in us. To feel this is to know in our hearts the true depths of our lives, the true depths of our cosmos, and the ultimate purpose and significance of our existence. I thought to conclude my talk this evening with one of the prayers with which Pope Francis concluded his encyclical Laudato Si, because I think both of those prayers are very beautiful, and communicate a profound spirituality in their simplicity. But instead, if you will indulge me, I will conclude with a short Navajo prayer that seems more fitting for a person approaching the last portion of his life. The word in this prayer, translated as beauty, is the Navajo word hosho, which is very important in Navajo theology and has the connotations not only of beauty, but also of goodness, well-being, blessedness, and peace. And perhaps its strongest connotation is harmony. Harmony with the sacred and harmony with the processes of the universe. The prayer goes this way. With beauty, may I walk. With beauty before me, may I walk. With beauty behind me, may I walk. With beauty above me, me, may I walk. With beauty below me, may I walk. In old age, wandering on a trail of beauty, lively, may I walk. In old age, wandering on a trail of beauty, living again, may I walk. It is finished in beauty. It is finished in beauty. Thank you very much.
0: Tom will uh, answer a few questions if you'd like. Yeah, David.
2: Um, thank you so much for
0: the tour of the course. I'm wondering what are, as a liturgical theologian, in my mind, what are the things that you personally have done throughout your life, the practices that allow you to um, cultivate right, the ability to see as you pointed out, one of the difficulties is we we tend to just go through our lives not paying attention, you know? -hmm. So what are the the things that you've done that you find most helpful for others that you would want to share with others that could help cultivate that type of vision?
1: Well, my answer may, may please you, because I think one of the important ways is exactly the rituals that I say we create to remind ourselves that our lives have to do with sacredness. So the celebration of the Eucharist and the various sacramental ministries within the church have always been uh, very powerful for me. Um, meditation. Uh, I I do it by simply thinking about this and, and praying about it. Um, other than that, I don't know what to say. It just kind of happens. <laughs> but But the rituals are important because... You're right, we, we do take our daily lives for granted so much that the rituals give us a chance to remind ourselves of what our lives are all about. And so they're, they're very important. I've, I've always found the Eucharist extremely important in cultivating that sense of the sacredness of, of our lives and, and what God is willing to do in order to save us. So, all right? You're Oh, yes. A memory
3: research I did a while ago when I discovered that 47% of the human genome is yeast. <laughs> is that right? And that I told my students when they're next time they're baking bread or pizza dough to remember that that yeast is a comrade. <laughs> 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 Very good.
2: Very good. Yeah. I'd like to thank you on behalf of a lot of the MAPLIN students
1: well, thanks, Rich.
2: who've had an opportunity to. Uh, fighting in classrooms. <laughs> uh, sometimes more with each other looking around at a few of the uh, graduates uh, uh, earlier days. But one of the things that occurred to me over and over again was a comment that I'll accuse you of having made.
1: Uh-oh. And you have
2: the opportunity to clarify that and deny whatever you want. But uh, you, you, it, was some, it had to do with the afterlife as I recall, and the, the I got the sense that you were sort of uh, merging away somewhat from the more traditional view of what happens, and embracing somehow a universal, uh, life, a universal experience for whomever after life. Anyway, and that being related to this whole concept of the Infinite God in a finite reality. Can you say something
1: about that? Do you mean universal salvation? Is that what you're talking about? Okay. Yeah, uh, this is an interesting topic. Um, It surprises a lot of people to know the Church has no official position on this. It, It permits you to accept the traditional view that salvation is only meant for human beings and that only some of them are going to be saved and the rest, unfortunately, left to... The results of their own free choices, uh, an idea that goes back to Augustine and gets strongly reinforced. Um, well, it occurs in all the theologians through the Middle Ages, but it's strongly reinforced at the time of the Reformation in Luther and Calvin. Um, that's one view. Uh, but there is a minority tradition in the Christian tradition. There are five patristic theologians and one medieval theologian and then much, many more in the 19th century who argued for universal salvation, that God intends to save all. And um, the church never condemned that position. It permits people to accept it if they wish. So it strikes many people as odd that there is no official position on, on that issue of salvation. It's really up to you what you want to believe. And for me, um, the reason I would, ex- I would argue for universal salvation is, it seems to me that it's a clear implication of many of the parables of Jesus the lost coin, the lost sheep, all those sorts of parables, um, the prodigal son, uh, many, many parables seem to imply that sort of thing. Uh, but it it also seems to me to fit the character of God better. Why on earth would God create creatures that God had no intention of saving? Um, if God glories in the beauty of all things, why on earth would um, God permit not just some humans, but the whole rest of creation to be annihilated forever doesn't make any sense to me. So my own personal viewpoint is for universal salvation, but it's it's an open question. It's not something the church has taken a definitive position. Yeah, Renee. Um, well, oh, well, thank so no, thanks. Well, thanks. <laughs> No, you don't have to.
3: <laughs> um, but I want to ask two questions. One is, um, in, in my head work, and I, I read it a long, quite a long time ago something like that, that the notion of God suffering and all that, and I noticed there was all this resistance about God because God's so powerful and how can God suffer and all that language. So, do you think some of the misunderstanding is the distinction that some, and I think it comes from a patriarchal perspective, the distinction between weakness and vulnerability, that the nature of love is that one is vulnerable to to, to the relational movement. Right? Mm-hmm. One can be hurt, in fact, in a beloved relationship love and beloved. Sure. So the question of vulnerability and weakness, how that works in Whitehead's work, that's one question. And then the other is, uh, this is more uh, in some of the theology that you mentioned. There was this notion of beauty being linked to order, that God is, has created really an ordered universe. Hmm. But and here I'll bring in the liberation concern, and that is that frequently order has been more of a kind of a quietism to squash dissent. So what is this order that God? Because I think God is an ordered God, but there's a sense in which justice sometimes is.
1: Yeah, uh, let me deal with the second one first. Uh, when Whitehead's talking about order, what he means is there has to be a basis of order in order for a universe to exist, period. But he says in, in Process and Reality, novelty is also an instrument of God, not just order. So order and novelty are both instruments. God is always trying to elicit out of the universe new things, new developments that can only occur on the basis of the order that's there, but certainly you don't want an order that's deadening, that stops novelty and creativity. And he actually says that, that if it, if it were only order, the universe would be dead. And so in that sense, yeah, order, when somebody tries to use order as a way of suppressing dissent or change, you're, you're crushing something very valuable. And he would, he would agree with you 100% on that. Your first question on suffering... Um, It's odd. The Christian tradition has this traditional view that God can't suffer, not because of anything that's said in Scripture anywhere. It's because they took over the Greek philosophical assumptions about the divine nature. They're a pre-Christian. And one of those was that God can't suffer, because the way the Greeks thought about it was, if God suffers, that means God's being affected by something else and is therefore not perfect. Their understanding of perfection is a being that is unaffected by anything other than itself. So Christianity takes that over because the only toolbox there was when we were trying to make the faith uh, philosophically understandable to cultures to try to convert them, the only toolbox there was was Greek philosophy. So they took over those assumptions, and it's been for 1,800 years, the belief that God can't suffer, but there's there's not one shred of proof for it anywhere in Scripture. There's not a single shred of it. So to to say that God suffers, to me, captures better what we're trying to get at in the cross of Jesus than than the traditional view that tries to say, well, the human nature suffered, but the divine nature was immune to it. Um, it, 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 It's just... So that's what what I'd say there. Whitehead certainly... Well, I should make a a distinction here. I've presented a kind of semi-revised version of Whitehead. I think Whitehead's philosophy itself God didn't have any choice about it. Uh, The limitation on divine power is just built into the metaphysical system the way he understood it. But if you revise it a little bit, you say that God chooses to limit God's power so that the universe can be free. And in that case, then yes, God is opening God's self to vulnerability. Uh, Just as parents become vulnerable when they give their children freedom so that they can develop into mature adults, it's exactly the same thing, except... In God's case, infinitely greater. <laughs> but, yes, Khaled.
3: Yeah, Thank you so much, Tom. For sure. Wonderful, wonderful. I, I wouldn't have expected anything less. <laughs> oh, you're too kind. You're too kind. As you were talking, I was thinking about being a Muslim, I was thinking about Islamic theology and uh, the concept of beauty and, and, and love and so forth. There's a hadith uh, saying of the prophet, he says, God is beauty and he likes beauty. Like
1: you thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks very much. Yes, Tina. Well,
4: thank you for this very deep and rich theology. I wish I could have a copy of your talk. <laughs> <laughs> can, um, mm-hmm. I'd like to ask three questions. Sure. Three? Wow. Okay. The first question, is... <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> okay. so question is often we, we when we speak of faith, we always speak of faith in relation to religion. So it's religious faith. And yet there is faith that is peculiar to science. Oh, sure. So we can speak of scientific faith. Mm-hmm. The second question is, question. often we say that religious faith is more superior than scientific faith. But as a matter of fact, they are equal at a certain point. Right? There's a point beyond which scientific faith cannot go. And there's a point beyond which religious faith cannot also go both come face-to-face face with a mystery which they cannot comprehend. Yeah,
1: I wouldn't disagree. But yeah, the third is, <laughs> now when we talk about
4: discernment, we don't speak any more of seeking the will of God, as if the will of God is a predetermined will that is there for us to find mm-hmm. or to discover. More and more, I think, um, spirituality speaks of to seek the desire of God. You know what God desires for me and what I desire. And that you, you can only know what God desires for you if you know what you desire in your deepest truest self. And that's where you find God, in that deepest truest centre. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's question or those are insights.
1: <laughs> they sounded like statements to me. But, <laughs> but I, I don't disagree with anything you said. So yeah. I think we have time for one more question or statement. We have to give it. Have to give it to our super major. Well, um,
2: first off, I have to say thank you so much, and on behalf of all the undergrad theology majors, um, I know a lot of them want to be here, and we want to say thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thanks for all of your years as a great professor, um, and I guess on that note, I wanted to ask, if somebody who wants to be a teacher, and you have many of your colleagues and fellow brother priests here, what is the way that in your life here at UP, and in the way that in the classroom, that sacredness in the ordinary that you have experienced
1: in your time here, you to elaborate on that, and how we can take it into our own sort
2: of daily life as teachers and as pastors and as friends. Mm. Well, um... Speak slow and easy.
1: There's one thing I, I can say, at, at any rate, off the top of my head. I'd like to think about that question a bit more, but... One of the things that I've really, really cherished over the years of teaching is to see how the minds and the characters of students develop from freshman year to senior year. It's it's absolutely an amazing thing to see and to, to be a part of it, a small part of that is extremely rewarding. It really is, at least it has been to me, and to me that is kind of a sacredness because It's God developing us, helping us to develop. And um, whenever you're dealing with another person's mind, especially a young person's mind, you're being given a very sacred opportunity. And in that sense, I have certainly felt that for all my years of teaching. So thank you. (laughs) All right.
0: Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Good night.